0: Welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone's had a couple good weeks. I know it's been a bit since we've had a podcast, Um, and I I hope that, you know, we've been able to have some space for rest um, and and relaxation in the midst of what's kind of been a busy summer, I'd say, uh, as things kind of come back. But I'll admit, I dragged my feet a little bit when it came to starting the sermon, I mean, I don't know about you, but talking about the beheading of John the Baptist is not exactly at the top of my super fun to-do list nowadays. But the more that I began to research and think about this particular text in the Bible, the more I realized the necessity of seeing it as a critique that does inherently support a lot of the things that we talk about so often here at Mission Hills, not in terms of validating violence, but instead the opposite of critiquing the systems in which this is taking place. In that, none of the content may exactly be new to you, and if so, great, Uh, but if not, I hope the angles that I come at with this passage will ignite something in you that creates space for conversations that go well beyond our congregation. And so this passage comes on the heels of Mark's rendition of the sending out of the twelve. Jesus goes all in and says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. These disciples go out, they become well known in the area, and eventually word makes it to King Herod. Herod has this flashback to when he beheaded John the Baptist, and this passage is the account of this. And only, it's interesting, only Matthew and Mark seem to have uh, space for accounts of this event. And so as we head into this passage, let us pray for eyes wide open as we encounter this text. So let's start with some family systems. The King Herod that's mentioned in Mark is Herod Antipas, the son of King Herod the uh, so called great, the father, a shrewd and ruthless political operator ruled the region from 37 BC to about 4 BC. And upon his death, his kingdom is divided. King Herod the Great was responsible for a great deal of building that occurred within the region and was king when the Magi came and visited, asking for directions to where the king of the Jews had been born. So that's him. And his son, Herod Antipas, is a tetrarch, not truly a king. Meaning he ruled over a quarter of what his father, Herod the Great, had divided up upon his death. He was appointed by Emperor Augustus to rule over Galilee and Perea. Now, one thing we don't understand fully from this passage alone is the complexity of Herod and his wife's relationship. We know that Herod was married before, divorced, and then Herodias was both Herod's niece and sister-in-law. So after Herod divorced his first wife, he convinces Herodias to divorce her husband, Herod's half-brother, so they could marry. Now the Gospels state that John attacked the Tetrarch's marriage as contrary to Jewish law. Uh, Not only was it incestuous, but also John critiques the fact that she was his brother's wife. Um, And Josephus, talks in the Book of Antiquities to say that what actually led to the beheading of John the Baptist was John's public influence that made Herod and Tipus fearful of rebellion. Now, Family systems itself is a theory and it's set in a number of narratives that's championed by Mary Bowen and some of the basic questions to ask about this family we're looking at and even our own as follows what influences do your parents have? What were their parenting styles and their marital styles? What roles were there in the family? What family rules exist? What family secrets are there? And how is homeostasis maintained? How do these play out for you currently? And I can go more into what family systems theory is on Sunday, but what is important is to recognize that even though the people of the biblical text may feel emotionally distant from our current reality, they are very much influenced by how interpersonal dynamics play out in our world. The Book of Antiquities paints a picture of at least how the consequence or impact of the ruler's family system impacted others in society. The writings from Josephus in Antiquities says that Herod had John killed because he was suspicious, um, some of the, the words say, Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Now and many others came in crowds about him, for they were very greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties, by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late." So that comes to us from the Book of Antiquities. Nonetheless, John is imprisoned and executed. Of course, we get a slightly different narrative here in the Gospel of Mark. Herod was reluctant to order John's death, but was compelled by Herodias' daughter, unnamed in the text but named by Josephus as Salome, to whom he had promised any reward up to half his kingdom, she chose as a result of her dancing for guests at his birthday banquet. And I think that Mark names this particularly as an exposure of the court. He gives us an interpretation of the life of Jesus in the context of his times. And while Josephus' analysis in antiquities is maybe more correct in terms of history, Mark has this larger agenda of exposing the ruling class. And I think that this is one of many times present in biblical text when I think it's sometimes valid to ask the questions of theodicy and why violence so quickly enters into our world. And if I were to offer some family systems theory to that of the Herods, I would say this. King Herod the Great was known as an aggressive tyrant, and I can guess that this caused some ripple effects in his own family system. The trauma and abuse he perpetuated has the same push of generational effects to those that were on the receiving end of these injustices would have encountered. And our bodies and our minds hold on to the impact and affect us negatively, no matter the role that we're playing. And I would imagine that there is some amount of dysfunction seeing the relationship between Herod Antipas and Herodias, And I could see Herod Antipas taking on this role of not only the identified patient, per se, which is used in family systems, um, but also as this navigator of the legacy of the family. The family rules could very well be to do whatever it takes to carry on the legacy of the family. And perhaps there was an unspoken rule that the children must accomplish the most amount possible while being the least disturbing to the status quo. The fact that Herodias is Herod's niece and sister-in-law, whom he then marries, would be enough to be a family secret, but I'm sure that there's more that we don't know of that dynamic. Homeostasis would be maintained by using money and status to maintain power. And as we look at this text, we see how this family system sets the stage prepared Antipas to perpetuate three things in order to maintain power and status in the situation shifting the blame silencing for the status quo and the chains of civility So if we shift back from what were presented in Josephus's narrative to what we're given in Mark we find some curious and disturbing events that lead to John's death In this passage, the language makes a couple of statements that I think are clues for how Herod weaseled his way into, quote-unquote, escaping blame for ordering the murder of John the Baptist. In verse 19, the author makes this comment about how Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod was protecting him. So Herodias, a woman, becomes the villain in the story as she uses Siloam to get her wish. And this kind of narrative comes disturbingly close to the picture that's painted of Eve often in that of the Genesis text. In this way, we have to consider how we critique the biblical narrative to ensure we are not quickly accepting the roles in the narrative in play. And the reason why I push so hard to acknowledge this is I think there's another line that also gives us a clue that this is indeed a shift of blame. It's in verse 26 it says, the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Let me be clear. There is always a choice. There is no way in my mind that we can truly say that he was backed into a corner by a 12-year-old. However, he claims this... Twisted kind of innocence that he didn't have a choice, a tactic later found in Pontius Pilate's words as he hands Jesus over to the people. What he plays is complicitness. He did so in order to maintain his status in front of his guests and Herodias, even at the expense of a man's life. I think we find this all over the place in politics that people use the excuse of supposedly not having a choice as a way to erase blame from their own actions that have direct impacts on people, usually those who are already marginalized. So as we question this passage, may we also question our own system and relationships in an effort to see that there is always a choice, even if it is a more difficult one. For all the wealth, for all of the access, there is a way that this relationship between status, money, and power has absolutely cheapened lives in this sense. And I don't think this is merrily kept to the biblical text, right? We have seen examples of this playing out, examples that often lead to several being silenced to maintain status quo. Public Citizen released a tweet this week with two headlines side by side. One from March 3rd, 2021 states, Jeff Bezos would pay over $5 billion a year under Warren's wealth tax. The other states, Jeff Bezos had a good Friday. He's nearly $8 billion richer in a day. The caption of this tweet from today sarcastically says, Oh, the horror. And even this capturing should be enough to cause folks to question, and yet there are so many ways in which media gets silenced under the white noise of what have you, fake news, whatever. But there are so many people and truths in history that have been silenced in order to maintain the status quo. Whether that's MLK Jr., our nation's history of mass genocide of Native people, and lynching so many examples not only were their voices silenced and lives ended but they are still erased in the narrative of history and we have to continue to create space for that that is not something that we quickly rush past but we hold that and we still push forward and still maintain that hope can and will change And so pushing back against the status quo will be seen as inherently uncivil by the people who want to maintain it. Of course, there's always higher standards expecting of those people pushing back. You know, I do find it interesting what the disciples do at the end of this passage, and that it's named in the passage. They attend to John the Baptist's body, giving him at least some proper recognition and honestly grieve his death as appropriately as they could. It would have been a shock to the system in more ways than one. And here it seems that they're stripped of their ability to grieve as they would with proper honor if his body was intact and he'd instead maybe died of natural causes rather than brutally murdered. And this is also something that feels gravely familiar in a world of brutal violence and abuse of power. It seems like I could also make a guess that perhaps the disciples were forced to maintain civility in this situation. Civility has been used against people of color, especially as it pertains to how, when, where, and why are quote-unquote allowed to protest unjust killings and hate crimes in this country. Quotes like, you can protest as long as you're peaceful and then yet still launching an attack against protesters is this venomous rhetoric that paints the people in power as civil, and anyone who goes against them as not. There's an NPR article titled, When Civility is Used as a Cudgel Against People of Color, and it talks about these chains of civility. Such laws and ordinances were designed to contain communities of color, says Gay Teresa Johnson who studies the intersection of civility and race at the University of California. They allowed white citizens to, in effect, civilize people they considered less than. And I wonder what the role of civility would have been in the aftermath of John Baptist's death. We know that Herod Antipas would have been looking for ways to maintain power here, maintain status quo, as what his deepest fear seems to be, his greatest spiritual distress maybe, is that this power would be taken away. That is why he fears John. That is why he feared Jesus. So as always, we look at our flip side. This whole passage is an illustration of Herod Antipas having this flashback. The news of Jesus' rising effect um, and, and people triggers this paranoia on Herod's part in a flashback to when he ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. He recognizes the impact that the disciples are having throughout the land, and it's made its way back to him. So his immediate reaction is that it's either a ghost or it's once again something that needs to be taken care of. And while I typically try to stay away from binaries, there is an extreme contrast between the ruling of Herod Antipas and Jesus. I really appreciate this quote. It says, The meal of Herod is about corruption and violence. The meals of Jesus reconcile both Jews and Gentiles. The meal of Herod is for the upper crust elite. The meal of Jesus is for the crowds. The highlight of the herod liturgy is the ceremonious delivery of the head of the baptist the highlight of jesus's meal is the giving of food for everyone and in so many ways i think this paints the picture of the radical nature that pushes back against the status quo that often leads into this sneaky and crafty uncivility That Jesus leads through. Of course, the death of John offers a foreshadowing to the death of Jesus. In both cases, political violence is rendered in order to maintain the status quo. It's interesting that Pilate initially hands Jesus over to Herod Antipas, in whose territory Jesus had mostly been present to. But again, as shifting the blame and shifting the responsibility, Antipas sends him back to Pilate's court. I can go on and on about how the rich parties and the glamour and the ridiculousness of the wealth gap all continue to perpetuate so many acts of violence in ways in which can very quickly and very easily be swept under the rug because there's power to do that. Um, But I also think this is maybe knowledge that we have already in our collective wisdom. So I think that's enough to try and cover. It might have felt spotty, it might have felt all over the place. I apologize and I'm back to my old ways. But what I truly hope is that this angle helped spark something different, at least than the televangelists calling on you to be willing to suffer abuse and murder at the hands of zealots and wealthy kings just to maintain a status quo. If anything, we see grief. We see the sadness and we see the trauma that is not unlike what is held in the bones of our own communities at large. We see the impact that is not just on one life, but has a ripple effect to so many, especially their immediate communities. We see how when someone began to step up and speak out, that they were quickly shifted to being a target of violence. So I leave you with several questions and calls. As we have been influenced not only by the political and economic systems in play around us, we are inherently influenced by the generational trauma, abuse, and patterns. Kings of the past were not immune to the patterns of humanity. And as we can maybe begin to see the threads of how Herod Antipas' actions were really built on generational family systems, and eventually connected to the future in which the shifting of the blame, the silencing for the status quo, and the chains of civility continued to create a hold on at least moving forward. As we consider where our social locations are in the world, what kinds of patterns have emerged in our own families? Not to say that they are anywhere near this level, but what are the patterns of function and dysfunction that have maybe been part of a larger story? How do we see the patterns of shifting the blame, silencing, and civility acting out in our society, preventing us from moving forward towards justice? How can we also critique how narratives are perpetuated throughout our societies, with images of this kind of violence becoming more and more frequent and actually causing more and more harm on our psyche, even if having this kind of immediate evidence is sometimes helpful for seeking justice? Part of our resistance includes continuing to acknowledge that we are on stolen land, that there is an ever-increasing wealth gap, that there are so many communities that have been affected by generational trauma caused by these systems of oppression. We also need to critique violence tourism, the ways in which social media has negatively impacted our psyche. And when we revisit texts in the Bible like this, which there are many, where violence, exploitation, and abuse of power are present, We must still be gentle with ourselves as we enter the space. I know it's been a lot to cover. I know that this is not exactly anyone's favorite topic, but I do hope that in these calls and in these invitations, um, there would be a greater understanding of how the biblical text intersects with our modern uh, context and how we can also understand That some of the narratives that we were told growing up about these particular passages are not always helpful and while i think that there are a lot of calls on our life of how we can give of ourselves into seeking justice and loving mercy um, i'm not going to perpetuate narratives that seem like they would be more harm than good and so with that um you know i'm excited for the conversation on sunday of what will come of it, and as always, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Amen.